0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear Other People with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me. And this podcast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the app store, download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher and where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com, free of charge. Get it in
0: the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people.
2: You and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful.
2: Jesus, did it well. I you know? It was incredible. You know, It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing
1: just one person at just one time, right? Okay, guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is potentially mood altering. This is healthier than most pharmaceuticals. Thanks for being here. I'm Brad Listy. I'm your host here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. It's, uh, it's good to be inside of your brain and, uh, I hope you're doing well out there in the world, wherever you are. Uh, first thing, before we begin, I want to do uh, a quick order of business. I want to attend to a quick order of business regarding mail. Uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but I have been running on the show's website for the past month or two a regular column called Listener Feedback. So if, you're e- if you've are if you emailed me uh, or Facebook messaged me or tweeted at me and you're wondering why I didn't respond, uh, check the site. Check otherpeoplepod.com because... That's where I've been doing mail. I've just been posting it there. I protect people's identities, so you can email me. I'm not going to use your last name unless you tell me explicitly that you don't care. But that's just the forum that I've created at otherpeoplepod.com. Listener feedback. So if you want to see what people are saying about the show, good, bad, and ugly, check it out. I get some pretty interesting emails. Uh, otherwise, what's going on? I uh, Just moments before I got on uh, onto the microphone here, I had a creative epiphany. I like to think I had a creative epiphany. I was listening to the new record uh, by The Strokes. It's called Come Down Machine. And I really like The Strokes. And then the other uh, band that I'm really into uh, lately is The Phoenix. Just like popular music, you know, rock and roll. But... I think these bands are both very good. And I was trying to figure out why I like them and why I think they're so good. And it occurred to me that it's the formula they're using is pretty simple. It's like if you're a rock band, if you're a self-professed rock and roll band, that's what you are. That's the kind of music you make. Then the, you know, the only thing that you have to do, really Your only job I've decided Is to make women dance That's it And you know, yeah Your job is to make everybody dance But I feel like women in particular Have like a heightened sensitivity to danceable music Like more than straight guys for sure The gay guys, you know, I think they have that sensitivity a lot of the time too. But, you know, if you're a rock band, you got to make the women dance. That's it. You know, it's not simple to do. It's not simple to execute, but it's a simple formula. And if you can manage it like uh, the strokes do and like Phoenix does, you you win. And there's no need to deviate. Just help people dance. Help people like have a little bit of fun. Make them give them energy you know it's like all these rock bands like they'll have like a you know some early success they'll have a, a, an album come out or two albums or three or whatever it is and then they they get uh artistic and uh morose and they decide they want to release an experimental record it's like Radiohead where it's like you know feedback and like animal sounds and static and you know it's like what the fuck dude you're a rock band. Nobody wants to hear your, like, sound sculpture. (laughs) I mean, you know, if you're Brian Eno and you're into, like, ambient music or, you know, whatever, fine. But if you're a rock and roll band, that's what you're calling yourself. And stick to the formula. God damn it. So, I'm half serious. But the other point I guess I would make to try to tie this back into something uh, semi-germane to the task at hand is that... Um, You know, is there a corollary when it comes to literature? What is the formula? What is the fundamental task of the writer? What are we supposed to be doing? What am I supposed to be doing? And it occurs to me that I think you're, you know, as a writer, your writing has to create an emotional experience for people. Like, if you can make somebody laugh out loud while reading, to me, that's a great achievement. I almost never, ever laugh out loud while reading. I don't laugh out loud much at all anyway. Like, if I think something's really funny, I will say out loud, that's funny. More than I will actually laugh, I think. But, you know, it could be laughter, it could be sadness, it could be some sort of weird transcend, you know, transcendent feeling whatever it is you have to create an emotional experience for whoever's reading your work you have to change their body temperature that's what you have to do so if you're a rock band you have to make women dance if you're a writer you have to change people's body temperature that's your job i figured it out So I hope that, uh, do you agree with me? Do you not agree? You can email me. Maybe I'll share it with, uh, the masses online.
0: Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: My guest today is Kendra Grant Malone. Uh, she's a writer. She is a dominatrix She has two poetry collections out. One is called Everything is Quiet. Uh, That one's available from Scrambler Books. And then the other one, co-written with Matthew Savoca, is called Morocco. Uh, That one's available from Dark Sky Books. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the lovely and talented Kendra Grant Malone. I am, well,
2: I'm in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, I'm in my living room. I'm sitting in a hammock and and when you
1: you have a hammock in your living room
2: (laughs) yeah I do Mm -hmm.
1: okay I like that that seems comfortable
2: it is comfortable it's actually it's not what it sounds like though it's like uh you sit in it you don't lie down so it's like a half hammock it's a hammock chair
1: oh okay it's like one of those chairs that like hangs from the ceiling basically. Okay. Okay. And, uh, you know, before we got on, uh, we came on to the, uh, recorded interview, uh, we were Mm -hmm. talking briefly and you were saying that you do phone sex work in the evenings. I do. -hmm. Okay. So this is just for extra cash. It's gotta be an interesting job. I have a friend who did that, uh, for a while and she, uh, said as much, but like, what is that? What does that entail? And how did you get into that?
2: Well, I mean, phone sex, is, it, it's sort of like the umbrella term. I do, you know, because I do sex work. That's my job in general. I'm a dominatrix during the day. And when I get home in the evenings or on my days off, I do phone domination. So when I say phone sex, I mean specifically like BDSM sort of activities, but over the phone.
1: Okay. So, I mean, what, what does this involve? Like BDSM, domination, phone sex. Like... Are you telling people to, like, get down on all fours over the phone? And is that, I mean...
2: Yeah, basically. I mean, it's part of it sometimes. And we. it really, it, there's no, like, sort of stereotypical behavior. It's different for everybody. But basically, people want to be controlled, yelled at, or, you know, told what to do. And I facilitate those needs
1: for a coach. You sound so... Uh What's the word I'm looking for? Sweet and gentle. It's hard to ima- it's hard to ima- it's hard to imagine you barking out orders.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what my mom says. She's she's um she has a hard time reconciling that I'm not nice to people for money.
1: <laughs> does she know that? You do, does she know that you do this uh this dominatrix stuff and phone sex stuff?
2: Yeah, she yeah. Knows. Both my parents know. They're they're really open-minded, friendly people, and they're really supportive of it. So yes.
1: Oh, they okay. That's interesting, because I think my parents would be freaked out, you know. <laughs> <just to laughs> they say
2: were a little at first.
1: Okay. Yeah. So let's get into this. Like, first of all, uh, where are you from?
2: I'm from Minnesota. I'm from like a first-ring suburb of Minneapolis.
1: Which, which suburb?
2: Uh, Golden Valley.
1: Okay. My wife is from Minnetonka originally.
2: Oh, that's so really close. Yeah,
1: I see, that there, is. this is this is, There's the Minnesota Nice, like a, a Minnesota Nice Dominatrix. <laughs> I picked I picked up on it instinctively right away.
2: <laughs> you did. Oh, yeah, I'm really polite. Oh, oh gosh,
1: if you just wouldn't mind getting down on all fours now.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, but secretly, but there, you know, there could be. I feel like with Minnesota Nice because you know I've I've visited there a few times and. I mean, it's a real thing. Like you're at the bank. I remember going to yeah. the bank and it was like a drive through <laughs> bank, which first of all is a, well, I mean, I guess there are some drive through banks, but there was like a drive through <laughs> there was like a drive through teller. And yeah, I because. remember her because she was so friendly and it was like, you know, coming from Los Angeles, people are, are nice enough, but not like that. And I just remember being taken aback by it. Cause I haven't been around that level of like niceness in a long time. And, uh, it does make me think though, that, behind that veneer of niceness, there could be some seething hatred perhaps. I don't know.
2: Yeah. I mean, there could be, there could be anything, I guess (laughs) in that way that the world is sort of malleable, but, um, I don't really equate BDSM with like hatred. To me, it's like a really happy, fun sort of thing. Like I have fun doing it and my clients have fun with me. Um, You know, it's not quite as negative as it sounds.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I just, and I don't even mean with relate, with relationship to BDSM. I just mean that sometimes when there's like that level of niceness, like you wonder what lives behind it. And plus there's the whole like repressed Scandinavian thing that lives up there, which is sort of true too, right? Or am I wrong?
2: Yeah, well, I feel like the Cohen brothers sort of made a name for themselves exploiting that niche, right? The, uh, the repressive dark side of, Midwestern um, Scandinavian ancestry, right? Right. And they make that movie Fargo, and like every movie after that, they're keeping like the film industry alive in Minneapolis proper.
1: Yeah, well, and and there's also like uh, the the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo movies that were actually shot, like the the Swedish version. Um, there's like a certain menace to the Great White North, or I don't know. It captured something about that. But uh, back to this whole BDSM thing and how it's actually a happy experience. Uh, you know, this, I, you know, from the outside looking in, I wouldn't think that I would think that there's something dysfunctional or, you know, there's some sort of pain that a person is trying to address by asking for physical pain or, you know, do you get into Mm -hmm. the, do you get into the psychology of it with these people or have you kind of worked this through in your own mind as you've gotten into this work? Yeah.
2: Um, I think you have to. Especially if you're doing it for like an extended period of time, I've been doing this for six going on seven years this um fall, so um, there's no way not to sort of like get involved with it psychologically, but I think it's just it can it can be whatever how do I say it I guess it's flexible it's not there's not like one type of explanation for why someone wants something like I like to explain it people who don't do it themselves like it's really not that much different than eating spicy food like some people just really enjoy the feeling of eating insanely spicy food and they're like challenging themselves and they're like how it makes them kind of dizzy and it's and it's an enjoyable experience but it's masochism so you can sort of apply that to any part of the body or the mind you know it's it's a surprising thing it's not always so serious
1: and is like do you find that there are certain types that are drawn to it, like, you know, professions or do you know what I'm saying? Like, are there, are there kind of like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, do do you have a lot of clients who have striking similarities in some way?
2: Um, only like sociologically because of income, you know, because it's not cheap to see dominatrix. It's a luxury expense. So, um, yeah, a lot of people I see are white, straight, upper echelon males.
1: Like so, like Wall Street because- like Wall Street guy. I mean, I had Melissa Phoebos. Do you know her mm-hmm. by any chance? Yeah, I
2: know Melissa.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Well I had her on this show. So you're not the first dominatrix uh that I've spoken with <laughs> on this show. Yeah, probably
2: game. more than you even know. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> Half the writers out there. That's how they're making their living. But uh right. so I mean like a lot of Wall Street guys, a lot of powerful men who like to be uh taken down a peg, maybe. Is that what part of the uh attraction is for them?
2: It is for some people, yeah, okay. it
1: exists. And what are, like what are you doing for these guys? Like, what's one of the weirdest things you've had to do for somebody? Like, are you peeing on people and stuff like that?
2: Oh, uh, I hate answering that question. I gotta be honest with you. <laughs> that's the go-to because weird is, you know, it's like that's the most goddamn subjective word. It's I don't know what's weird to you might not be weird to me. So also, I don't really like to go into details about sessions because it's it's like a private experience Would not ask a therapist details about their therapy sessions
1: oh sure i, would. I hope you wouldn't <laughs> of course i would that's what i do that's all i do is try to, well, i try to i try to pry into people's business
2: i understand but they'd be a real creep if they answered it and i feel the same way about like my sessions with my clients i i don't give away private details of their experience because it's it's for them they pay for it they pay for their privacy
1: that's awfully ethical of you <laughs> I try to be. It really is. Uh, now, and Debbie, you, you've never, have you ever like gotten into like a relationship with a client, like a friendship that exists outside of the uh, dungeon or any kind of like romantic relationship.
2: Uh, yeah, I've had some friendships, definitely. Things get complicated, but also, you know, it's always financially based. So there's always, you have to draw like pretty firm boundaries with people. It gets confusing, especially for the clients, but um, yeah, I have a couple of clients that have turned into friends that we just hang out now.
1: And that, but you you hang out, but like they no longer come to you for domination experiences.
2: I oh, some do, some don't.
1: Oh, okay. So there's not like a there's not like a like a Rubicon that you cross where it's like, okay, we just got brunch. Like I can't do this
2: anymore. <laughs> like... No, no. I don't draw. I don't really have like um, models like that to work off. Everything just like case by case.
1: Just intuitive. Okay. So, and mm-hmm. um, you, you come from Midwestern stock. You're from Minnesota. Uh, mm-hmm. And did you grow up in, like, it sounds like you have a happy family, parents still together?
2: Uh, well, no, my parents are
0: divorced.
2: Oh, they uh, are. But, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I guess pretty happy family. Bunch of uh, like, nice Midwestern people. <laughs> I don't know, like, like, are,
1: uh, do you come from artistic folk?
2: No, my dad's a dentist and my mom's um, a bookkeeper. But uh, my siblings, I guess, are artistic. One is um, a really talented photographer, and another one um, is a recording engineer. And my other brother is special needs, so he's just all sorts of special.
1: Oh, okay, what well, kind of like? Well, I have an uncle who's special needs. Like, are we talking like mental, uh, re- what it, mental disability? I never know the words, but you know. Um. Yeah. Is it that kind of thing? Yeah,
2: yeah. He's got. I, I don't mind talking about. It. He's got fetal alcohol syndrome. So he, um, his mother, who was not my biological mother, he's adopted, um, drank while he was in vitro, and he suffered brain damage because of that.
1: Oh my God! And your parents adopted him. Mm-hmm. That's sort of. That's really saintly. That's adm- that's admirable.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know if they knew that's what they were getting into when they adopted him there's i mean it's it's like impossible to tell when oh, you adopt
1: oh, infant. oh i thought they like knew and they were i mean it's it's wonderful that they adopted period but i thought they knew <laughs> i was like my god uh as you know as a parent as a parent i'm thinking to myself that's a lot to take on that's like you know that's, oh, yeah. that's beyond my level of humanity but it's uh <laughs> it's admirable either way
2: <laughs> yeah we'd be surprised you just adapt right
1: yeah well my sister adopted and she's had a wonderful experience with it so
2: Oh, great. Good for her. I mean, I'm going to adopt someday. I like the idea
1: of it anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's a good thing. The only like the only thing that, I mean, it does worry me a little bit, just like with your folks experience, like, you know, you do sit there and think to yourself, like, what am I going to get? But then I look at my, uh, my niece and I look at how wonderful she is and it's like, well, you know, it's, yeah. it seems like it's worth, like a worth, the worth the risk or whatever. Right.
2: And not for nothing, you kind of roll the dice even when you get pregnant
1: so <laughs> well that's right that's right i mean it's not like my it's not like my dna is any like you know rosy picture <laughs> you know like there's pl- <laughs> exactly there's plenty of landmines here too so um so your your dad's a dentist your mom's a bookkeeper and you do mm-hmm. so you do sex work like this I, I guess that interests me you know like and and they're cool with it like your parents must be super groovy like i feel like my parents would be Freaking out if I was, you know, involved in sex work somehow or one of their daughters were. Like, how did you break that news to them?
2: Oh, man. They're, they are, they're pretty groovy, as you say. Um, well, I didn't tell them for like four years. I lied. I was like, you know, going with the waitress. <laughs> the yeah, I'm a waitress lie. But um, I guess one day I, I was just feeling really anxious and I was talking to my dad on the phone and, and I decided like when I, next time I see him, I'm going to, I'm just going to tell him and, and then I I was in Minneapolis not long after, and I just I just sort of blurted it out, and he was actually he's a really adorable kind of thick accent. He's from Chicago, but he's lived in Minnesota for like 35 years, so he's a really thick accent. And he was like, oh, well, that's something. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: I was, was gonna say
2: it. I was
1: gonna say you have to remember the exact line. It's the kind of line you would
2: remember, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, because I was and up. I was like, they, I'm. You know, it's a pretty terrifying thing when you live a double life like that, and it's not—it's a pretty, um, it's not terribly well accepted to be out as a sex worker. It's why most people lie about it to their friends and family. It's—you know—you might get rejected, or you no, know, you might people might respond with violence or anger or whatever. And he was—he was just like, you know, he looked almost bored. <laughs> I had gotten myself so worked up about it, you know.
1: Well, and so you didn't have, like, a lot of explaining to do? Like, he got it? He was like, oh, okay. Or did you have to, like, talk him through it and explain the details?
2: No. Yeah, uh, he was really chill. He uh, he told me I could tell him whatever I felt comfortable with. And, you know, and he wouldn't, like, close his ears to anything. But he expressed, you know, like, unhappiness about my life choices for a moment. But I think he, it's just I'm an adult and I'm you know, completely independent, so he can't really, he accepts that he doesn't make any decisions about my life, and I told my mom a little bit before that over the phone, so once it's, once it was sort of out in the open, it's, you know, nobody really, nobody really cares anymore.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they're just like, oh, that's just, you know, she's a dominatrix, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, and you told your mom, what did your mom say?
2: Oh, she thinks it's funny.
1: She does. Okay. And you make good money doing this. I mean, like you said, these are higher end clients. So you're living in Brooklyn uh, where it's, you know, it's not exactly cheap to live, but you, you know, Dominatrix can do okay for herself, right?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, without being too transparent um, on air, I'd say I have a fairly, it's not exorbitant, but like a pretty, it's comparable to like a middle class salary, like at a best job. It's not like, A lot of people sort of, like media representations of sex workers are that you're like down and out, completely impoverished, addicted to drugs, and just like burning your money as soon as you make it, or that you are bel de jour and you're rolling in it and you're avoiding taxes and, you know, you're wearing diamonds and fur and and the truth is most of us are in the middle.
1: In the middle. Do you have health benefits? Just
2: like anybody else.
1: (laughs) Do you get dental like or anything like that? I mean do they provide
2: <laughs> Well I do because my dad's a dentist. <laughs> oh that's right.
1: You've got dental built into the family. Okay. And then Yeah. But they don't provide any of that. You have to do your own. It's not like there's a
2: No, I buy my own insurance. Yeah. <laughs> I too. take care of myself.
1: But you know what? That could change. These uh these dungeons, now that they have Obamacare, you know, they could have some sort of small business plan, right?
2: Not likely. It's usually run as freelance independent contractors. That's how they that's how they do it. So it was before I was working in dungeons. I I was working in reality TV, and it was the same thing. So <laughs> I've never had insurance.
1: Oh, you were what? what, what like what kind of reality TV?
2: Um, I just worked for like a small independent company. That's why I moved to New York. Um, that made shows for the DIY Network. Um, the most profitable show I worked on was called Under Construction. It's just about. These Italian guys that owned a construction company in Brooklyn—I I think it was only there for a few years—sort um, of drove me crazy. <laughs> so it was a blessing to be laid off in 2008 when the whole industry sort of crashed.
1: Yeah, well, like you know, not just that industry, but okay. And so, yeah. and then that's when that's when you made the leap into uh, dominatrixing. <laughs> okay, so yeah. how did you get the job?
2: Um, Just like any other job, I just uh, Googled, uh, you know, dungeons in New York, and I looked around, and there's some pretty, like, flashy, fancy ones that I interviewed at and um, some less so. And I ended up going in the middle with a sort of female-owned and operated dungeon owned by a woman of color, and I liked that about it, that I wasn't sort of being pimped out by some... Straight white dude, <laughs> so, right, right, right. Um, and that's where I got trained, and now I I run my own sort of show,
1: you do. independently. It, it's like a startup kind of.
2: Yeah, basically, it's where I got trained, That's where I learned how to sort of work the industry. It was a good place to start.
1: Okay, so did you when you lo- when you left reality TV or reality TV left you? Did you think to yourself, okay, now I'm gonna do this sex work that this is something you had been entertaining no. mentally or was it like how did you arrive at that as an option
2: yeah no way I uh well to be frank I had I had kind of a drinking problem at the time <laughs> and, and uh I had savings from working in tv and I just burned through them in like a few months drinking and and being a loser, and then suddenly I realized that I had to um, make money uh quickly. And I had friends who were other kinds of sex workers. I had a friend who was a prostitute and a friend who was a stripper, and neither of them sounded right for my temperament. And uh, another friend of mine had mentioned they had heard about that for me. And um, so I just looked into BDSM, and it sounded like something I could do and I'd be good at, and yeah, just let the Internet do the walk-in <laughs>
1: Okay, so why did you think you would be good at it? Like, you're just like, I have the right temperament for this, or I... Yeah. Yeah, okay. And yeah, it's...
2: I don't really know how to describe it. It's just how you decide you're good at any job. Like, like why one would choose working in retail over waitressing? It's like, mine just appeals to you more because you can just sense, like, oh, I'm, I probably wouldn't be good at serving people because I have a bad temper, you know? Right, you right. Just, you make those gut choices. And my gut choice was, I knew I wanted to do sex work, but... This was the
1: niche for me. That's okay. And then uh, take us inside of your first day, because it seems like a particularly fraught uh, first day on the job. You know, like I can't even imagine my first day on the job in a dungeon. Uh, You know, like is there orientation? Does somebody take you through it? Or you like, you know, who's your like, like your first your first client, for example? Did you feel awkward in any way, or were you like totally natural at it from the start? Um, I don't
2: know if I felt awkward. I. I don't know how to explain it really. It's, uh, I was, I had a little bit of training from some ladies that had worked there. Uh, they sort of showed me things to know, like the, about the physical aspect and had some advice on how to deal with the emotional aspect. And then when my first client came in to see me. I, I guess, hmm, just sort of have to be intuitive and be open minded and be, uh, to be on your toes you have to kind of walk on eggshells when you're new to it and you're learning how to navigate sort of really risky emotional terrain but I don't know how to explain it it's just really instinctual just sort of dive in
1: (laughs) well it's got to be interesting I mean you know like compared to so many jobs that are so um I don't know just just completely boring you know desk jobs and cubicle jobs that sort of just suck the soul out of your body like this uh has got to be on a day to day basis fascinating, no?
2: Uh, some days it is. I think it's on par with every job.
1: Yeah, probably I think you'd be yeah.
2: surprised what you can get accustomed to. <laughs> I mean, I hear the same the same few compliments and the same few lines over and over again and, and you just sort of like sometimes it becomes very routine. You realize that people are People have the
1: ability to be very predictable. <laughs> wow! Yeah, even this is a grind. Unbelievable. So, do you ever uh, do you ever feel at you know in danger? Like, are you ever have you ever had an experience where you were like scared?
2: Mm-mm.
1: No. No. Okay. Is there any kind of like security apparatus on the premises? Like, do you have like a safety word or something? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, my clients have a safe word. <laughs> oh, that's right. You're the
1: one doing the beating. Okay. That's right. Yeah,
2: I'm the scary one here, Brad. Okay. Um but yeah, there's security in the building. Um I won't really go into detail about that because it's like kind of a private thing how dungeons are operated. But um that's yeah, cool. it's pretty safe and secure. It's classic. Um I've never been put in danger. I've only I've had a really happy experience with getting a sex with us
1: okay and have have you ever uh, had any clients who are famous like movie stars or anything like that?
2: Um, not that I can talk about
1: <laughs> oh come on please have you had no. okay can you conf- can you confirm that you've had famous people in your dungeon yes i have
2: i have i have had such with celebrities but that's as much as often
1: that's as much as you can say you can't like initials mm no. Matt, It's Matt Damon. I know it's Matt Damon. <laughs>
2: I wish. Oh.
1: No. Oh, man. Can you, like, any kind of, like, distant, weird movie reference hint, just so, like, my listeners can try to tease it out or, or like, you know, de- no, you can't go there. So, no,
2: it's the most secret anatomy.
1: You're so ethical. I
2: try.
1: It's driving me crazy. Okay. <laughs> um, so childhood. Uh, back to your childhood in Minnesota. Uh, you know, uh, what was it like? You're growing up. You're going to school. Were you a strange kid? Were you well-adjusted?
2: I was a shy kid. I was really shy. I was kind of a mama's girl. Sort of hid behind my mom. I didn't really have a lot of friends. I don't know, but overall I was pretty happy. I was really close with my brother for most of my childhood. We were like pretty close to the same age, two years apart, so we were pretty inseparable. And my older sister's always like had her eye out for me. She's real sweet. She takes care of me. And my other brother, he's 16 years older than me. He's quite a bit older than me, but um, we're pretty close in a different way, I guess. But yeah, there's nothing really dramatic to talk about.
1: (laughs) Just like you know, just like me. It's like kind of a boring, happy Midwestern childhood, essentially.
2: Yeah, yeah, my parents did good for me. I mean, I went to Catholic school for a few years. Um, didn't work out. Uh, found that I was dyslexic kind of late in life, which was difficult.
1: Wait, Just, in, um, is that why it didn't work out? Because of the dyslexia?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really, I really struggled with traditional academia, which is why when I was sixteen, I applied to a charter art school um, that was publicly funded in Minnesota, and thankfully got accepted. And um, also started working with like a a private tutoring company that helps people with learning disabilities just sort of, like,
1: get through things like algebra
2: and and grammar. Like, it, it just is, I just have a lot of problems with grammar.
1: <laughs> so, you know, and forgive me, I should know more about this. I mean, I, I, I think I get the gist of dyslexia. Like, when you look at writing on a page, the words appear backwards.
2: Yeah, not literally quite like that, um, but something like that. You just, like, you don't really have... For me, it feels like I just every time I look at letters, it's like the first time I've looked at them. Like, I just, it takes me a few seconds longer to register shapes as having meaning, you know? Does that make sense?
1: Kind of, yeah. yeah. So
2: it's just, I just read a lot slower than most people. I spell wrong most of the time, but I'm completely enabled by my iPhone. Uh, you don't really need to know how to spell anymore with spell check. It's, it's just a... <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. Everything's fixed for me constantly. And um, as far as, like, my writing life goes, I have a couple of people that I rely upon pretty heavily for proofreading. And, and I've worked with really generous, kind editors that help me out. So it, it works itself out in the end.
1: Okay, and so with with regard to, like, getting treatment for dyslexia, like, what kind of exercises do they have you do to to help alleviate it or fix it?
2: Um, I never really experienced anything about that. I don't know if there are treatments or there might be. All I know was, uh, when I was failing classes and, and just doing really poorly in school when I was a kid and we couldn't really figure out why, because I don't really have sort of, there's different tiers of dyslexia and I don't really have it really extreme. Like some people just can't read or spell at all. And, um, I'm just a little slow. So... Um, I just worked one-on-one with a tutor who sort of, like, encouraged me to take my time and that there was nothing to get frustrated or embarrassed about and that I could ask questions and be verbal and, and sort of that's how we dealt dealt with that.
1: Okay. I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know if there was some sort of, like, exercise or medication. There's nothing like that. You just basically slow down.
2: Uh, yeah. For me, anyways, I don't know other people's experiences with I actually don't know anybody else who's dyslexic, but, um... Yeah, for me that's all we did, and I just needed sort of encouragement and someone to sort of like work one-on-one with me. Okay, when I came to academia.
1: And like as a as like a I don't know a young woman or whatever like have you always been interested in I don't know I guess sex or <laughs> that's a bad way to phrase <laughs> it that's a bad way to phrase the question but like were there inklings of your later career in sex work when you were younger like were you always sort of like fascinated by People's sexual behaviors, and you know, was there some sort of like Hmm. more pronounced aspect of your um, behavior or character that you noticed early on?
0: I
2: see what you're saying. I'm not sure because I don't want to, I can't assume anybody's life is like mine, and I only really have my life as a point of reference. So I think I was had a pretty healthy, sexually liberated teenage years, but um, didn't really seem very special or unusual. Um, so you weren't, you weren't like it?
0: you
1: weren't like like whipping your high school boyfriends or anything, or? <laughs> I can't uh, <laughs>
2: can get
1: into details about <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> oh my god! Where were you when I was in high school? You know, this could have worked out for me. I could have. Uh... <laughs> um,
2: okay. I've always been a little bit bossy.
1: Okay. Say that, I guess. Where do you get that? I mean, you just have a you just you a bossy character. You don't seem that bossy though. You seem like I said your voice seems so sweet to me on the phone. But you I can, feel
2: like people who sound bossy when you first meet them aren't going to be effective at bossing you around. <laughs> you know? people have to want to do what you tell them.
1: Right. It's
2: so, a learned skill.
1: Okay. okay. Takes a
2: little silent an being controlling.
1: But <laughs> so <laughs> but. were you like a particularly, or you know, it's, you said earlier that you were drinking a lot, so you have kind of a wild side. Like, did that start when you were a, a young, like high school, college age person?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think I definitely have a, a tendency towards drug and alcohol abuse that I've like oscillated on and off with my whole life. Just um, periods of of heavy abuse and, and needing treatment. And then periods of sort of like healthy productive behavior i uh, i still i feel like I'm still mastering it um but I definitely have like a addictive tendency
1: you do okay so you- have you been in you said you've been in treatment before
2: <laughs> yeah, not like inpatient treatment, but I've definitely like had to seek out drug counseling,
1: okay, like what kind of drug we're we talking like a booze and then other drugs.
2: You really do pry for the details, don't you? I
0: mean,
2: why not? Oh, my God. Um, Yeah, booze has always been a tough one, I think, for a lot of people, though. Um, After a while, I had a little bit of a problem with Percocet. That's when I sort of had to seek out counseling and help. Yeah. That's a tough one. Um, And just various on and off different substances over the years. I guess if if it exists, I've probably tried it. Yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Okay. And so, I don't know, a couple of things that come to mind is that like, I feel like over the last 10 years, pharmaceutical drugs have really risen in terms of their, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Availability in terms of the consumption of those things on a recreational basis. I feel like that was like, because I was in college 10 years prior and I feel like that was just maybe beginning either that or I was out of mm-hmm. the loop. Maybe- Maybe everyone. Maybe everyone was doing those things behind my back, but like it just seems like over the past ten years, it's really become a lot more prevalent.
2: right. Um, Definitely.
1: And so, you know, like now you're like, what kind of phase are you in now? You are you? You know, you, we were emailing. You said you were going to be drinking wine, so you're still having some wine. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. I'm in a sort of controlled stage. I uh, I, went, I had a, a sobriety spat a couple of years ago. Um. After having a little intervention with a uh, an ex boyfriend boyfriend of the time and and my two roommates sort of corralled me to the side and said, you have a problem <laughs> like you need to take care of yourself and so I dried out and um
1: for how sort long? Of,
2: oh Jesus! Probably six months.
1: Okay. That's a lot. Of, yeah, that's a good that's yeah a good, that's a good spell.
2: Yeah, it dried me out and sort of looked at my life choices and been in a certain I guess I've been in control ever since but I'm you know always waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's it's like a cycle. It's happened so many times since I was like fourteen and had my first drink that I I'm, I'm prepared for the next round.
1: <laughs> so do you I mean do you think that event like do you I mean it sounds like you can see somewhere down the line you're gonna have to get sober. Like is that what you see eventually happening?
2: No, I don't wanna uh uh-uh. <laughs> Oh you don't
1: but what do you mean? Mm-hmm. so what do you mean the next round? You're gonna to have to take a time out and take another six months to dry out?
2: Yeah, that's right. It's been working so far on and off.
1: Yeah. But don't you worry I mean, but doesn't it like doesn't it like creep on you? I feel like the I feel like there's you know, that's the thing, is that you think you, you have it by the tail and then it you know, I don't know.
2: Absolutely. That's what I'm talking about. I haven't really mastered it yet. I don't know if people ever do. I don't know. Um, I know I've always sort of sought out other people with addictive personalities because, right, that's what you do when you're one of them is you want to be enabled. You don't want people to question your, like, drinking or your drug habits. Um, so my experiences, the people around me have always sort of seemed it seemed normal to me. But I'm, I'm sort of learning, I guess getting older, I'm going to be 29 in like a week and a half.
1: Oh, my God, you're so old.
2: I know. I'm creeping
1: on 30. <laughs> I have like two gray hairs. Oh Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm 30. I'm almost 38. So I've got about a decade. Oh my God. I'm, yeah. I'm ancient.
0: Um, You're dead. Yeah, right? <laughs>
1: so, you know, I, it's, it's tough to say, like, I, I certainly don't want to sound like I'm sitting in too much of judgment. I've just seen friends. I mean, I've lost friends. I've seen friends go down that road where you think like, Oh, they're okay. They're not okay. And, um, it's tough, you know, and it's like the, the whole thing about it is that to even talk about it with someone, whether it's you or someone else, if someone's struggling with like, uh, you know, or wrestling with substances that there, there's nothing I could say, obviously, especially since we're just meeting now on the phone, but um, whoever right. it is, like, it's the kind of thing you have to arrive at personally. And then there's also, you know, and this is where it gets like really dicey because, you know, there's obviously the person who's an addict and who has an addictive personality, And a lot of those people, because addiction kills, like a lot of those people, they either have to quit, you know, they eventually they hit the wall and they quit and that's what saves them or they don't. And eventually they die somehow, you know, whether it's because, you know, one way or another, it gets them. But there are Mm -hmm. some people, I think, I think it's safe to say there are some people who like can figure out a way to live and, you know, use substances and... It's like Willie Nelson quit drinking and now he just like smokes pot 24 seven, you know, like he's an example. You know what I'm saying?
0: Like (laughs) he's not
1: not sober, but he seems totally functional. And like, I don't think anyone would argue that Willie Nelson is not like a totally sweet, sane man, you know, like, or at least, you know, as sane as human beings can be. So there's like that, there's like that possibility as well. And I think like people sometimes, especially on like the sobriety side of the ledger, don't like to necessarily talk about that possibility because um, you know, it seems slippery or whatever. There's a lot of danger in trying to like walk that narrow line, but some people can do it.
2: Right. I think it's it's probably a small minority of people who can do it, but I'm trying to do it. And so far for the last couple of years, it's been working really well. It helps that I have a really supportive partner who sort of is extremely verbal is helping me keep an eye on my drinking and and, uh, well, current lack of drug use, which I think makes a huge difference if you are just so used to being around people who don't care, you know?
1: Right. So, and you say partner, is it male, female? May I ask?
2: It, yeah. I, But I hate answering it. I don't know why. It just seems like it's going to fill in blanks for people for some reason, but it is, it is a dude. Yeah.
1: That's a dude. Okay. Um, and so you, you so you're just drinking right now drinking it that's it but no like you're not smoking weed or anything else it's just booze
2: well i'll tell you a funny story i actually tried i think i don't know tell me if this happened to you in like your late 20s it started for me and for what i hear a lot of people it only gets worse that um i just can't do drugs anymore like i get so sick like hangovers have become such a serious thing in my life like i can't Sort of when I was younger, I could do all sorts of drugs and just like wake up at seven and go to work the next day. But now it's just, it's not even fun anymore. No. I don't, I actually just don't enjoy it. It's like the, what it takes out of me isn't worth like one night of feeling so sort of relaxed. <laughs> well,
1: okay, see, that's a good sign because like, uh, I think people who are really off the deep end, like they don't give a shit. But like, I, you know, I just talked about this on this show not too long ago. I went to my sister's wedding. My little sister got mm-hmm. married, you know, just a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago. And it's the first wedding in my adult life that I've been to where I did not get drunk. Um, I just, I felt like there was some sort of, you know, and it was sort of funny, but I felt like this incumbent pressure to like show mm-hmm. up at the wedding and be like festive. And it was totally like invented. You don't have to do that. Just go have fun, you know, but I somehow had right. it in my brain <laughs> that like, it was my job to get shit faced, And I was dreading it because You know, I'm a parent now and that is, you know, you think it's bad getting older because I'm 10 years, I've got 10 years on you and I totally get it. Like I cannot tolerate a hangover, A, because it makes, you know, you're essentially basically poisoning yourself till you get the flu. That's what it is.
2: Right. Exactly. (laughs) And like,
1: it's not worth the flu. I don't want the flu. I can't deal with it. And like the hangovers not only extend to the next day, they extend to the day after that sometimes, depending on what you do. So Um, I just give up. Like I can't do it anymore and I don't want to do it anymore. Um, but yeah, I just went to the first wedding of my adult life. I had a fine time. I had like, you know, two or three glasses of wine over the course of the night and nobody noticed. And it was all, you know, this big, this big story I had built up in my head about how it was my job to somehow, I don't know what it was. It was completely insane
2: yeah it sounds a little delusional but like collective delusion i feel like everybody responds to weddings that way
1: yeah it's like we're supposed to show up we have to do this and it's like no you really don't just just have a nice time you know and i dance i stay i stayed until the very end you know i stayed until the very end so
2: wait so how old is your kid
1: oh uh, my kid's two and a half almost two three. and a half yeah over a little bit oh, more wow. than two and a half. so super sweet you know it's it's uh it's like one of those things where I could sit here and gush and all the things that everybody says is probably what I would say, you know, but, uh, are you going to, you plan on having kids? Do you have any dreams of that?
2: Um, I don't know. I really don't know. (laughs) I feel like a lot of people, when you're a woman and you say you don't want kids, you get lectured like a lot. It's oh, just, I'm gonna, If you really, say no,
1: if you say no, I'm going to lecture you immediately.
2: Good. <laughs> no, but it's a really common response. So I just have this built in reaction to like not want to talk about it when people ask you if you want kids. Um, but right now, I feel like it's not a definitive answer that absolutely is not going to change ever. But in my current state of mind, I feel like, ish, yuck, I don't want kids. <laughs> yeah. You know, but maybe, maybe in five, ten years. I would want to have them. I think I'd probably adopt. Um, but, you know, I, c- I can't make any blanket statements for the rest of my life. You know, things change so much.
1: Right. You just don't know. I mean, my wife, I don't think... I think if anyone wanted kids, it was me. I was the one who... I mean, I just have always had it in my head that I would. I've always sort of known that I was going to be a dad, if that makes any sense. <laughs> really? Yeah. I kn- yeah. I never, it never, like, occurred to me that I wouldn't. And I don't know if that's because I had, like, a happy childhood and my parents um, really got along or what, I don't know what it was, you know, but it was just like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this. It's sort of like the family business. Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I come from this big, huge family and it's all Southern folk and like everyone's still together. And my grandma had nine kids and people just make babies, you know, in my family. So I figured, right. that, I figured that's what I was supposed to do. I don't know. Uh, good. <laughs> well, yeah, you're like, good. Glad you made one. But, uh, Good job. (laughs) So, um, so writing, let's get to your writing life. Uh, now that we've we've gone through your, your sex work and your maternal status, Uh, (laughs) you were, you, you said you went to art school and, uh, this was like an art high school, like a special high school for the arts. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. I went to, um, like a magnet school for the arts and then I went to uh, like college for art as well.
1: Okay. And so, uh, were you right then? Did you know I'm writing like that was your concentration or were you like painting or was there some other discipline that you were into and then you drifted into writing later or was it always that?
2: Yeah. Well, when from, I was in um, a media program when I was 16 until I graduated high school, meaning, um, it was this art school, it's like different sort of, um, areas you could be in and media was like photography, film animation. And originally I really wanted to be an animator. Um, I loved claymation and stop motion animation when I was younger. And then, um, I ended up just, uh, going to school. I got the best scholarship for, um, which to like do. Um, it was the local art college in Minneapolis. It was called MCAD, Minneapolis College of Art and Design. And, um, you know, they offered me a good scholarship, so I went there and I studied filmmaking and really fell in love with that and, um, and I, you know, I, I felt like I really wanted to be a filmmaker and a director and all that, and I, and I did. I really enjoyed it and um turned out after college, when I was in college, I was really good at getting grants, like I was always writing and, and getting them and getting money to make these little short films um and when i was done um and i had to pay back school loans and work a lot and and it, it's just not a practical medium unless you're an extremely wealthy person which is why it's you know the industry that it is um and i just like if i guess it took to writing as like a solace to sort of just a different vehicle of storytelling so um it just sort of came about organically and then um, it just went on and on, and, and I just get further and further away from um, from film and TV, just sort of disliking it professionally, and and then having happy successes with fiction and poetry. And I don't know, I, I didn't plan in this life; it just sort of happened.
1: Well, you know, I think that happens a lot of the time, and you you alluded to something that's interesting about you know, the element of privilege when it comes to the arts and it comes to the media professions broadly. And that, Mm -hmm. you know, and that includes people who write, uh, fiction and poet, or especially long form books, you know, poetry Mm -hmm. and and short fiction lend themselves better to, uh, nights and weekends. But when I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people on this show, I've, I've known a lot of writers through the years and I would say like a, a sizable majority of writers, um, you know, you come from privilege, or, or or some some way or another. You know, someone's yeah. bankroll in that. If you're writing a book, or they have some sort of break that's happening, and you know, I always notice it when I read literary biography too. Like, you know, the the, the benefactors that show up, or. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's just it's just the way that it works, and it doesn't get talked about all that much. It's the kind of thing that's sort of kept quiet, you know, or whatever. But I live in Los Angeles. I definitely see a lot of that happening in film and television. You know, it's like all the kids from prep school in the East Coast or the kids that went to the Ivy League schools or whatever. You know, it's like a feeder system almost.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's the same in, in New York, right, It's L.A., maybe even worse. But, um, and I, I also certainly like can't deny my own privilege. I am like middle class and, and white and, um, and I I guess I appear fairly straight in my straight relationship and I reap all the benefits of, of that privilege. So I, I also won't like, just because I have to like, I, I don't have a lot of spare time and I don't have a lot of spare money, um, so, I guess it's like it's a seesaw, right? Like, you have to sort of acknowledge other people's privilege, and it's sort of soothing reeling, realizing that, like, maybe some people did sort of obtain success because, like, their dad was already a famous writer, or they're, like, plugged into this network, or they just had a lot of money and a lot of free time to write said like- novel. But, I have I have a handful of friends. I mean, the first two that come to my mind are my friend Catherine Lacey and Lee Stein. The two amazing women I know that I've known for a number of years. But um yeah,
1: I had They don't Lee. come from Lee. a ton of money. I had Lee on this show.
2: Yeah, they're they're you, they're cool girls. They're smart girls. They've written amazing books, and they're sort of they come from middle class privilege like myself. But they they found a way to do it. You know.
1: Right. Yeah. No. I mean, people do, and I like I always and. It's hard because I'm the same way. You know, I'm definitely um, a lucky guy and I've had a lot of privilege in my life as well. But I I guess I worry about it. I also have a tendency to feel guilty for shit and it's not even stuff that I've done. It's just like the whole system, it can make me feel bad. You know what I'm saying? It makes me feel sad. It's like, oh God, it feels like the game is rigged in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of really talented people who don't have a chance because of it or don't have nearly as good of a chance. And I guess that's just luck. Yeah, man you
2: know. Well, it's true, but it's good to feel guilty and shitty, right? Because like, I I mean, it's my personal feeling it's people of privilege. Like, you need to lend your voice to people who don't have one. Like, it's part, like, that guilt is a good thing. Like, you need to, you need to work with it. It's there for a reason.
1: Right. (laughs) But I feel like, I mean, I've been reading, this is like, these are all themes that, like, just needle, needle me over and over again. You know, I'm sort of obsessed with them. Uh, Class Mm -hmm. and privilege and Um, inequality, like those kinds of things. I, especially in the last few years, you just notice it. And, you know, I feel like I read something recently where somebody said that, um, and I think they were talking about Americans, but they might, they might as well have been talking about humans. I would suspect is that, you know, people are more than willing to relinquish their rights, but they're a lot less willing to relinquish their privileges. And that line, Mm -hmm. that line really stuck with me. It was like, yeah, that's true. You know, like, you can like basically violate someone's uh, right to privacy and like tap their telephone, and you know they will be like, "Whatever, you know, I just want to shop on Amazon." But like, if you take away their like, you know, frequent flyer miles, they'll, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I don't. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I do know what you're saying. It's like yeah. pe- people want their privileges more than they want their rights, or something. But I, uh, I feel like, I feel like I often feel like people. And you can tell me if you agree or disagree, but I feel like things need to be radically different in terms of how people treat one another, uh for there to be like major improvements in the way in the status of like life on Earth broadly. And <laughs> I feel like yeah. okay, I mean this is this is getting into my shit now, but I feel like Spill it. Yeah, well I feel like um when it comes to people um uh, being empathic or people wanting to help other people. I think there's a lot of good instincts and I think there's a lot of goodwill there, but I think that people often don't want to be inconvenienced. And I mm-hmm. question whether or not someone is actually being helpful unless they've been inconvenienced. Does that make any sense? You know what I'm saying? It's like people are willing to be helpful if it's like easy, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll just right. I'll cut a check for an amount that doesn't mean anything to me. And, you know, there you go. Now go away and have fun with it. But it's like I feel like maybe people need to actually be really inconvenienced, either financially or they need to be inconvenienced emotionally or in terms of, like, time commitment. You know what I'm saying?
2: I understand that completely. There was, uh, so last year, was it last year already, Hurricane Sandy happened here? And um and people people just went fucking nuts about it. I mean and and for good reason, some really some really shitty things happened because of it. Um, and I remember just like you go on Facebook and it was like, volunteer here, ride your bikes here, give your clothes away here and it, it actually it just kind of blew me away. I mean, in one in one regard it was really beautiful to see communities sort of like coming together to take care of people who needed it. But in another way, it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Do you know how many homeless people are in New York City all the fucking time, every day without a storm? You never even thought to volunteer before now. Right. Like, it, like I, I spend every Thursday at a housing project hosting a movie day for old people. And, and it takes a lot of time out of my life. And it costs me a lot of money that I'm not making by not going to work. But um, it's just, it's what you owe the world, right? I, I guess that's how I see it anyways, but it, it was something that just really blew my mind. Like people and people feeling really self-satisfied about volunteering their time during in the aftermath of Sandy. when it's like, there is need around you constantly.
0: Right. Especially- <laughs> You're
2: congratulating yourself for, for helping when things were obvious and when it was easy for you to volunteer, when there was like signs everywhere and, and you didn't have to go far. Like you said, you didn't have to be inconvenienced to, to also get a, 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 a pat on the back for your uh, <laughs> your worldly kindness.
1: Like 178 Facebook likes because you like <laughs> exactly. So it's
2: like it. wow, it's just so heartless how much you don't care about all of the all the pain and suffering in New York on a daily basis.
1: <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's definitely... I mean, it's an aspect of living anywhere. There's suffering everywhere. But when you live in a major city like New York or like LA, like you, I just see it every day. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's really cool that you host that movie day. That's something... That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like you're taking time out of your life to go do this. And you're losing money doing it, you know? Uh, I don't know. I think that's admirable. So I tip my cap to you for that. That's the kind of thing I mean. And I don't think... There's enough of it. And I feel like I just, I, you know, this is something I'm eventually going to have to write about. I just don't know how to like, my thoughts are so scattered about it and there's so much emotion involved in it that I don't know. I don't know um, if it's clear yet to me what I want to say, but Mm -hmm. you know, it's like bits and pieces. I feel like you get into this topic of conversation and people, a lot of the time uh, they get defensive because it's, it's like, they feel like they're being criticized. Like it's delicate to talk about, but I feel like, yeah, because
2: it's not fun to acknowledge your privilege, right? Because then you're acknowledging that like you didn't exactly earn most of the things you have in life and that it's your responsibility to spread out your privilege, to get rid of it and to give it to people who need it by doing things like that. Like philanthropy, I can't remember where I heard this. I think it was a Ted talk. Um, God damn, I wish I could remember the woman's name, but I heard this. So he was talking about how philanthropy is just, it's a broken system. The fact that we need people of wealth and privilege to give to, you know, like the little people, the poor people, the impoverished people that need it, it just it shouldn't exist at all. Like philanthropy is a nice idea, but it's still it still represents that something's broken in the first place, that things shouldn't be so satisfied. Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: Well, yeah. No, I mean, it's uh, like, I mean, that clearly there's like a very very small sliver of the population that's holding most of the most of the pie that's the way it is i mean that's i mean that's the math so that seems unhealthy to me and i don't know i don't know how to fix it but i feel like you know like yesterday here's an example yesterday i took my daughter to the museum after school i picked her up and you can take your kid to the museum and they can paint for free so like it's just a fun thing to do but uh, for her, mm-hmm. I, you know, actually, I I probably have as much fun as she does. Like I'm sitting there, like, <laughs> making like a Crayola masterpiece or whatever. But you know, I'm looking at the I'm on the way out and I'm looking at the wall of the museum and I see all the names of the donors, and it's mm-hmm. like you know these really rich people, uh, and you know bless them. It's a lovely museum, so it gets complicated because it's like I love the museum, my daughter loves the museum, it's nice to go to the museum, but it's like I feel like really rich people a lot of the time. Are giving to like museums and like the symphony and shit that rich people do you know like, right, and they're not like down in the dirt where they really need to you know where people really are in need and uh, yeah, you know, I wish that that were different, but I don't know, I feel like it's gonna take radical change to get people to to come together.
2: That is an understatement,
1: but yeah. yeah. Uh, So we've gone, we've now, we've now, we started with like dominatrixing and sex work and now we're trying to save the world. Like I like the trajectory of uh, like where we're going here. Like it feels like we've had like a well-rounded conversation or or we've come, I don't know. Does that make any sense? I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. It does.
2: I I mean, I I gotta admit, I'm constantly trying to save the world. (laughs) I spend a lot of time and most most of my time, most of my days thinking about,
1: how to make things better? Do, do, okay, so then if people like anyone who is of that bearing, like if you're trying to save the world, and we talked about guilt earlier being a part of that, and I'm assuming that's at least some component of why you're you're out there battling. But do you, do you find yourself angry, like you know, like at injustice, and do you ever get you ever get overwhelmed by anger?
2: Yeah, but mostly. It's, you know, it's hard to feel like anger about someone else's injustice. All I can do is like hope that I'm a good enough ally for the people who need it. But I feel angry about injustice for myself. Absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it's a good thing. Yeah. Like, you, like you said, with guilt, it's healthy. You, uh, you you should react with some anger. but
2: Exactly. Anger is helpful when you're not being treated right. You know, like uh, being a sex worker leaves you pretty marginalized and can be really frustrating. Um, I mean, just. Being a woman is already marginalizing in a way in America, and and then you layer it with something that's like you know just sort of like socially repulsive um, and stigmatized, and just trying to like I don't know have a normal life while doing it. It's it's difficult, and I feel really angry often. But I work through it, and I have a supportive community and family, so it's. You know, you use your anger to change things and, and what you can't
1: change, you just sort of you begrudgingly fight. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so so when you deal with people socially and they ask you what you do, uh, how candid are you on an average day? I mean, do you pick, I guess you have to pick your moments depending on who you're talking yeah. to or, or are you always just yeah. like, this is what I do, take it or leave it?
2: I try to like ninety percent of the time like work with transparency. I feel like a lot of sex workers are in a position where they can't be honest about it because of I don't know, say they want to work with children someday or um what their families that are, you know, devoutly religious or what for whatever reason they don't they they don't have access to transparency. That's why sex workers have kind of, you know, a really limited voice, um, because So many of us have to lie about it, Um, but I feel lucky that I I am in a position where I I can talk about it Um, and it can be, you know, sort of one representation that's not like mainstream skewed. Um, So I try to be as frank about it as often as possible, but, you know, if I'm around children, I'm not going to talk about it. It can be a little inappropriate. You play it by ear.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I mean, that's the way you have to be, I would imagine. And like when you tell adults, like have you ever had, I'm assuming you've had interactions with people where when they find out this is what you do, they react in a way that's like offensive to you or hurtful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I guess we lost a handful of friends about it. I'll never forget when I first started doing this and I was really proud. I was really eager and naive and I went home and hang out with my girlfriend who I used to live with in Minneapolis. And I told them what I was doing and one of them just looked at me and she said, Ew And I just I, I it just hurt me so deeply that she was so disgusted with me and, and I didn't see it coming. Um, you know, we don't really talk anymore but it's it's it left an imprint on me. It was the first time I realized that it's just because I think it's funny and interesting and I'm open to it doesn't mean that even people that I love very much are gonna feel the same way and so you do have to be a little guarded emotionally with that.
1: Well, you know, people are, you know, sex is a weird thing with people and everybody's got, everybody's got different ideas about it. And, you know, there's like this stigma that's attached, like you say, to sex work. And I think, you know, I feel like things are getting more, more tolerant and people are getting to, uh, I don't know. I I think it's just a matter of understanding. And I also think it's a matter of knowing people personally who are of various orientations or who have different attitudes about it. And just to give you an example, like I have uh, relatives who might be like super homophobic or are super homophobic, I would say. And mm-hmm. uh, I feel like whenever you have a person like that in your life, you, you know, it's pretty much a guarantee that they have no gay friends or they don't realize that they do. Um, mm-hmm. and it, do you know what I'm saying? But it's like, as soon as you have, as soon as they meet somebody and become friends like that, that to me is the great or should be the great salve. It's just like, Talking to someone, hearing their thoughts on right. it. I mean, it's not like there's any r- real huge rule book on this stuff,
2: right? Well, I guess that's one of the reasons I try to be as frank about it. Like, it's it's pretty, you know, puts you in a vulnerable position. like, it comes out at a dinner party when people are drinking, and forget it. Like, you're suddenly you're the center of the action. You have to tell you weird stories. Everyone wants to know about your creepiest <laughs> client. And you get, it gets, like, very performative, and you feel tired of that. Yeah. But at the same time, like you just said, you you want to be that representation. You want your your bigot family member to know that someone they love is someone that they think they hate. And, and maybe they're just wrong. You know, it helps to be that voice, like, we're not the monsters you think we are.
1: Well, it's like, you know, it's sort of like when, because uh, I'm kind of a vegetarian, but, I mean, especially in my family, like, I'm... I'm basically like a, you know, I'm a hundred percent, even though I don't eat that way. So I can't even tell you how many times, I mean, this is really distantly related, but it's sort of the same thing. How many times at the mm-hmm. dinner, how many times at a dinner party have you had to explain this shit and you dread it and it's the same line of questions. <laughs> and so it's like, it's at the point now where I don't even want people to know, like, I'll just eat the fucking steak so I don't have to go through, <laughs> do you know what I'm
0: saying? <laughs> That's yeah I mean, it's like, terrible,
2: but I do know what you're saying yeah. like, okay. <laughs> I've been a vegetarian at a dinner party before and just been stared at <laughs>
1: yeah i mean it's and it's just like it's like why are you doing it and then people start defending their own choices even though you didn't even say anything antagonistic about them and it's I, <laughs> right. anybody anybody listening who doesn't eat meat, I guarantee you they've been through the same thing it's it's like in mm-hmm. in a weird way, sex and food choice uh Very, very similar, very personal to people. People are very attached to whatever they think about those particular Mm -hmm. things. And when somebody like violates their particular set of standards, it can be uh, unnerving or like somehow emotional, you know?
2: Yeah, I guess there's something uh something about things that go in is that makes people
1: upset <laughs> well and i was going to say in, in uh sex work and dominatrix work there often there's often food involved right i mean there's like uh there's a kind of a hybridized situation there happening yeah
2: I, i've had scenes with food involved
1: okay so earlier just like and you can be totally honest with me like when we started off this conversation because i'm no expert at asking dominatrixes about their line of work I came at you with some. Mm-hmm. Qu- I came at with you know, at you with some questions that you've probably heard a million times. Did anything yeah. I did anything I say uh, come across to you as insensitive, or? Uh...
2: Oh, um, yeah. That's you know that's a really cool thing to ask. I feel like people often think that, but are just like don't want to admit that they might have been in a a little like you know ignorant place when they started. But I mean, I guess being asked what's weird is always like. Is always a little, I don't know, puts you on the defense as a sex worker because you know it's like a subjective word. It's like asking what's beautiful, like wait, you know. so wait,
1: asking. What did you say? I think you broke up a little bit when you were when you, when I asked what.
2: Mm-hmm. When you asked me what, like is the weirdest thing. I've done, it's something most sex workers have heard a lot and it makes you feel like a little bit of like a like like you're performing in order to answer it. So that's why I usually like dodge that question, but you know, never mind. you're, you're
1: pretty in the clear. Okay. It's like, it's like when people ask me as a vegetarian, like, what's the weirdest tofu? <laughs> what's the weirdest, yeah. what's the weirdest soy meat product? I, I can't stand that question. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, Basically. Well, this has been really fascinating and fun and, uh, I'm happy that I got a chance to talk with you. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Was it, was it enjoyable? Semi?
2: I did. I enjoy it very
1: much. You had fun. Okay. Well, I wish you the best with your writing. I wish you the best with your uh, with your work and with your um, boozing. You know, don't go too heavy. Just social, <laughs> social social drinker. Take good care of yourself. Stay hydrated, et cetera.
2: Stay hydrated. That is the thing. All
1: right. <laughs> All right, Kendra. Take care. You too. Okay, folks, there you go. That is Kendra Grant Malone. Go get her poetry collections. One of them is called Everything is Quiet. The other one is called Morocco. You can find her online at KendraGrantMalone.com. She's also on the Twitter where her handle is at Kendra G. Malone. Uh, Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for the good music. Be sure to check out Uh, KillRockstars.com. Don't forget to get the app, the official free Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way, the number one best way to listen to this program. It's also the best way to access premium content and the full archives, etc. And uh, the app itself, once again, is completely free. Uh, All right. So I think think that's it. That's all for now. If you're a rock band, make women dance. If you're a writer, uh, change your reader's body temperature. If you take nothing else from this episode, take those two things. Please remember that Napoleon was five feet, six inches tall and that Matisse once referred to Cezanne as, quote, a god of painting, a god of painting, end quote. Uh, That's it for now. Uh, I think I already said that. Thanks for listening, you guys. Thanks to Kendra Grant Malone. I'll be back again in just uh, a few days, Wednesday, 72 hours, 48 hours, something like that. I will be back with another program for you another conversation another monologue it never ends it never ends well i mean it sort of ends like right here